0: So, Psalm 125. Well, um, I've got sort of three points as we go through this passage. It's quite a short psalm, which means we can go nice and deep into it. And um, the first of those points I want us to see from verses 1 and 2 is that we have, as Ollie was saying earlier, security in Christ. Um, So just have a look down at verse 1. I love the way this psalm starts. It says, those who... Trust in the Lord. And I think that is a good way of describing Christians. And I wonder how many people, maybe friends, family, people you know, if you ask them to describe a Christian, they would use that phrase. I think usually it ends up being about what Christians believe, um, what they are against, how they behave. Um, but I think it's helpful to remember that what's at the heart of a Christian's identity is that they trust the Lord. It's who we trust in. Not good works, not behavior, not morals. A Christian is someone who trusts in the Lord. So this psalm starts with that phrase, and then it begins to paint a picture of what it's like to trust the Lord. So carrying on there, um, verse 1 says... Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Christians are like mountains, which cannot be moved, everlasting. That's quite a bold picture, I think, isn't it? Mountains. um, I'm I'm a teacher, a primary school teacher, and I teach a topic on mountains to my year fives. And it's fascinating Um, There are loads of different types of mountains all around the world, different shapes, different heights, but all of them are super solid and super old. Here's a fact for you. The youngest mountain range in the world, which is an odd phrase to use because they're so old, but the youngest mountain range in the world is the Himalayas. Um, And geologists think perhaps it's about 40 million years old. But whatever uh, the age one thing's for sure, they are really, really old, like foundation of the world type old. And the Himalayas, they're still going strong, right? They're still incredibly solid lumps of rock. So to all intents and purposes, certainly from a human point of view, they are immovable, everlasting, which is what the psalmist wants us to have in our minds when we read this psalm, because that is the kind of solidity, assurance, and security that the Christian has, a mountain-like confidence. Um, But the other great thing about this mountain metaphor is that it's so easy for us in the 21st century to connect with the original singers of this psalm. Because mountains have been there for so long. So when the original Jewish people travelled to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, they literally had to climb a mountain to get to that temple. It was a small mountain, but it was there every visit. It was the same, and it's still there today in Jerusalem. Strong, immovable, not like a, a tree or a building that changes or dies or falls apart. So I think that's a really helpful image for us to have, um, which is why God uses it for us. Um, whether you've seen the hills in Jerusalem or not, why not picture just now a favorite mountain of yours? If you've got a favorite mountain, I don't know if it's such a thing. And marvel that God would use that strong image to describe those who trust in the Lord. I think it's quite maybe surprising, maybe overwhelming. And we'll have a little look um, to see how it makes sense. But just wonder, of th- wonder about that. It's certainly a, a punchy way to start uh, this song, isn't it? And yet, if we just stopped there and just thought about, oh, I'm like a mountain, um, we wouldn't get very far at all. It's not particularly useful in just being told you're strong, you're secure, you're like a mountain. Um, In fact, that would be uh, very much like sort of blind positive thinking, wouldn't it? Um, Sort of things like, yeah, you are strong, you can do anything, believe in yourself. Um, But that's so far away from where Christianity wants us um, to go to find security. We don't just want platitudes. Um, Christians find their joy and safety, and security, because they trust in the Lord. That's where this mountain metaphor comes from. So it's as we get to know him, the Lord, that's when this mountain metaphor starts to make sense. We, after all, are just creatures. Weak. He is the creator. That's the point that we left uh, uh, Psalm 124 on. If you just look back, um, the Lord made heaven and earth. He's the creator, the powerful one. The Lord really is the one that we should be thinking about who is immovable. He's the one that lasts forever. Mountains are just his way of displaying that to us in creation, which is fantastic. He, he, He blesses us with images and parts of creation that talk about himself. So we should look at the mountain and be like, wow, if that mountain looks old, if that mountain looks eternal, think about the God who made it. Well, we get more mountain imagery in verse 2. But it changes who it's referring to as the mountain. So now God is being compared to mountains rather than the Christian. So have a look at verse 2. It says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So it's a picture that describes a scene that would have been really familiar um, to Jewish people as they originally sung this song together. It would have been familiar to Jesus, this hills around Jerusalem and his contemporaries. But perhaps it's not very familiar to us here in Ride. Um, But it's all to do with the layout. So I was I was really thinking, could I get some sort of paper mache model, but I haven't done that. But if you can imagine, in the middle, we've got Mount Zion. And that's what we've been um, looking at just there. That's who the Christian is described as. That's where the oldest part of the city of Jerusalem was built and the temple. And then around this sort of mound, we've got trenches and valleys, which are sort of like um, a defensive trench that you might get. I don't know if you've ever built sandcastles at the beach, and you you think, right, okay, I'm going to build build a trench, make sure it's nice and well defended. That's the valleys around the mound in the middle. Um, But then, if you go a bit further out, past the trench, you get several other mountains that are all taller than Mount Zion. And that is where this picture is going. This psalm describes Christians as being the stronghold, Mount Zion. Strong and immovable. But then it goes on to describe the surrounding mountains that you look out and see all around you. The surrounding mountains as being like how God, the Lord, surrounds his people. Like a protective wall keeping out danger. So keep that image in your mind. And uh, maybe if you, if you go home, you can have a look at those, those hills, those mountains. It's a picture of supreme safety and security. And the psalmist keeps talking, I don't know if you noticed, about how permanent the secure place is. So verse 1, the mountain, Mount Zion, abides forever. Verse 2, the Lord is surrounding his people from this time forth and forevermore. It's permanent, it's secure, it's safe. I wonder if that's how you view your position as a Christian, if you're a Christian here. Safe, secure, and permanent. With the Lord surrounding you like a mountainous wall of protection. Don't know about you, but I don't feel very much like a mountain very often. <laughs> in my daily life, sometimes in fact, I'm feeling things in the world, worries things that I've got on in the day, they make me feel very small and wobbly, not, not like a mountain at all. So maybe that's the same for you. And, and so reading this is, is a bit intimidating. And it, and it makes you feel, like, oh, that's not my experience. How, how can I feel like that? Or how can God say I'm like that when I feel like I do? Well, I guess there's two things that we could say here. Um, the first is, we don't have to feel something in the Bible, to believe it. It's wonderful when those two things um, come together, and the more we read the Bible, the more our emotions are affected. But just because we don't feel a truth in our emotions, our affections doesn't mean that we can't believe it. So the psalm, it, the psalms express a whole range of emotions, don't they? And it would be impossible to feel them all at the same time. So there's clearly times when we feel one more than the other. But the truths, which we can believe, they don't depend on how we're feeling. They depend on God, who doesn't change like our emotions do. So what do we know about the Lord that we can be confident in, even if we're not feeling confident ourselves? Well, his record still stands in history, and it's pretty amazing. Um, So the psalmist might have been thinking about how he didn't abandon Adam and Eve, right at the beginning of creation, banished them, but there was grace, there was hope, there was a deliverer to come. He didn't abandon an evil world in Noah's time. He saved Noah and his family, and creation carried on. He didn't abandon his people in Egypt. He didn't abandon his people in the desert, when they wouldn't trust him to go into the promised land. He didn't abandon his Abandon his people in Babylon, where it's likely these people have just come out of exile back to Jerusalem. He rescues, surrounds, and can be depended on no matter how we feel. But we, as Christians in the 21st century, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we can go one step further, can't we? So um, we can say more than the psalmist, because we can say he didn't abandon the world. In fact, he loved the, so, the world so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, so that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus puts their trust in him, will have life knowing God forever. He died, Jesus died, to take away the sin of the world, didn't abandon us to our fate. He rose to life to show us that he is worth trusting in. And when we do, when we do trust in him, it's like he places us on that mountain, complete with a natural defensive trench and a mountainous rocky wall around. Nothing can take away our place in his family. The blood of Jesus as he died on the cross is better than any protective physical wall to keep us safe. It makes us righteous. It makes us, in God's sight, as perfect as Jesus. Nothing to do with our performance. Nothing to do with our achievements or behavior or morals or even how good we feel. It's all about what he's done. Our security lies in Christ. So if you're feeling a bit... This isn't me. This is how I feel at the moment. Remember that we don't have to feel it to believe it because we can think about the Lord and who he is. And the second thing to say, I think, is that, I don't know about you, but if you are feeling weak and wobbly and the things in this world are tripping you up and getting you down, it's actually really comforting to know that our security is not in the things of this world, that there's something more secure than how things um, come and go in this life. So God can be relied upon because he's not in this world. The Lord is not at the mercy of cancer diagnoses or of corrupt governments. His designs are not stopped if we suffer financial loss or if we struggle with bereavement or if we get ostracized, left out at work. Even Satan's attempts to hold Jesus in the grave were no match for him. So don't worry if you don't feel like a strong mountain this morning. It is still true. Think on the Lord and who he is. Imagine yourself inside that defensive mountainous ring. And even if you were to be fretting and and worrying and running to and fro, the walls don't lose their strength. They're still the same solid structure day after day through our weakness and our wobbles. Our security lies in Christ. And Jesus said, didn't he, as he ascended into heaven, seemingly leaving his disciples to fend for themselves, he said, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age, even more everlasting than a mountain. So there you go, first point, our mountain-like security is in Christ. So picture those, take those images away with you and and remember that, and remember that it points to the Lord, um, not just how we're feeling. Well, that's all very well. But what happens when the enemies of God seem to be winning? It's not as if our our lives are free from pain, as if we are in that defensive ring and, and nothing can touch us. We feel the effects of sin and wickedness in our daily lives. We even see wickedness within the church. So does that mean God's protective wall has failed? It's not done its job? Well, I think we need to be clear about what he is protecting us from and where the promise is leading eventually. So this psalm is not suggesting that we'll be free from suffering or sin. Not until Jesus wonderfully comes again. The surrounding mountains of security in 1 and 2, they're talking about our position in God's family. He will keep us safe from the schemes of Satan. We will not be snatched out of Jesus' hands. But the next verse gives us an assurance, even when we can see wickedness prevailing. It assures us that, point two, wickedness, wicked rule particularly, will not last. Wicked rule will not last. So have a look down at verse three. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. So this verse talks about a scepter here. So we know the psalmist is referring to someone in power. A scepter is something we're ruling with, isn't it? But this scepter is a, a scepter of wickedness, which means someone is using their power in a way that is against God's rule. So two things to notice here about when we might find ourselves living under rule like this. Um, Number one, God is promising, if you look in verse 3a, the first part, God's promising that that wicked rule will not last forever. It shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. The, the promises that Christians have about the new creation, there will not be any wickedness to last through until that time. And number two, there's a promise and then there's a little warning warning that when we do find ourselves battling with wicked rule in some way in our lives, there can be a temptation for the believer to sin. So that's what it's saying at the end of verse 3. He's not going to let it last because he knows that when wicked rule is in the world, it can tempt the righteous to stretch out their hands to do wrong. So, Number one, it's good to hold in mind that unjust rule will not last forever. There's nothing, I don't think, so demoralizing as not knowing if a trial will end. But God promises that we won't always live in a world that is against God's ways. So keep going because it won't last forever. And secondly, the warning, whilst living under wicked rule... The believer might be tempted into sinning either, I guess there's two ways, either by using ungodly means to combat that wickedness they see, or simply by conforming to it and thinking, ah, that's what I'll do then. So let's look um, at three different scenarios um, about where we might see this in our lives now and how it might be a problem for the believer. So, scenario one. Uh, Imagine uh, the leader in your workplace is motivated pretty much only by the bottom line, by the profit margins in the company. So, they expect everyone to do whatever it takes to make more more money. How would that situation as a leadership um, expectation, how would that tempt the believer into sinning? Well, there's two different ways. You might simply conform to that expectation you might be tempted therefore to to fudge the numbers to make yourself look more successful for the boss Um, or if that seems a bit extreme maybe it will mean more like you overwork you're working so hard and so long because of the pressure from above you've just conformed to that expectation on you and you neglect family or friends or church because of it so that could be one way you might be tempted into sinning as, as a believer um, but how else might the believer stretch out their hand to do wrong in that situation? Well, they might be so overwhelmed by this toxic atmosphere from the top that they grow, they harbor this sort of resentment inside themselves towards their boss and they spread rumors and they generally do all they can to talk that leader down in front of others. Now, both of those reactions would be a way that's acting that's not in God's good design, to just conform to whatever it is that someone is saying, whether it's against God's rule or not, or to go so far against it that your conduct becomes ungodly. Instead, we should use godly means to combat injustice, but keep our conduct worthy in God's sight. So there's there's a the first scenario. Have a, Have a think of a second one, if that doesn't really fit into your life? Well, think about um, a government law that has been brought in and devalues, it devalues marriage into nothing more than a financial convenience and, and offers quick and easy divorces. How would that law from the top, if you're living in that country, how might that tempt a believer into sinning? Well, you might simply conform. You might start to shrink your own idea of commitment and marriage and family to fit in with this law. On the other hand, you might, take, you might sin by taking rightful concern too far. I don't know, it might come out as going to the internet, bashing out those hateful comments, inflammatory one-liners into social media, really just to vent your anger rather than to combat the situation. Both would be wrong. Both have been sort of caused by this rule over you. And instead we should use godly means to combat injustice and try and keep our conduct worthy in God's sight. But but thirdly, and let's be blunt here, this wickedness, this wicked rule, can infiltrate churches as well as secular governments, And workplaces. So, scenario three. Imagine a church leader decides to replace the Bible's clear gospel message with their own more socially acceptable message because they want to be well-liked, they want to have a good name in society, and they want to have a full church. So, as a Christian in that church, You might go one of two ways. You might be tempted into one of two ways. You might go along with this idea. And rather than to check and to challenge, you might just compromise the gospel message. and think, yeah, actually, yeah, we need a full church. We need big uh, things happening at the front so people think it's amazing. Yeah, let's get rid of that part of the gospel because it doesn't seem to fit with society at the moment. So it might be that that's the temptation for you. Or you might start your own little clique in the church and you might start moaning about this and splitting up the church family and making people choose between leaders instead of going to the leadership and sorting things out. Both would be wrong. And instead, we should be using godly means to combat injustice whilst trying to keep our conduct worthy in God's sight. So I'm sure you can think of your own examples of where... Wicked leadership. And and by wicked, it sounds strong, doesn't it? Wicked just means against God's plans, against God's good laws. I'm sure you can think of your own examples where wicked leadership, the rule of wickedness, um, has led to wickedness in the community. And you can see how it would tempt the Christian to abandon God's ways for their own instead. But this is not the pattern God wants. So before we major on that, just look at the way verse 3 starts. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest because he knows it's a temptation. He doesn't want people to fall astray. So he does not want the rule of wickedness to rest or remain over the place where his people live. So in verse 3, he's basically saying, I know about the wickedness in the world. And I promise that it will not last, otherwise you might fall into sin. Keep your trust in me. Don't be tempted away. And it is true, it will not last. There is a future that is worth sticking with God in the present for. So with the final two verses, we get a longing from the psalmist... For God's justice to bring about perfect peace. So third point, a future of justice and peace. We see that from verse four. It says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Now, I assume we all want good to win out. Yeah? So, verse 4, we want good to be rewarded and to win out. And I imagine we all want evil to be punished. Verse 5, we want things that are evil to not go and people get away with it. And I imagine we all long for peace and true rest. End of verse 5. So, I take it that these verses seem pretty hard to argue with. They're good things. Good to be upheld, evil to be punished, and for peace to last. But perhaps if you think about them long enough, maybe you start thinking, well, that that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit with our own lived experience. Good doesn't always get rewarded, and evil is not always punished. And anyway, what human judge could make such a judgment?" about who was good and evil anyway. Surely there would be uproar. There'd be no perfect judgment. Well, that's just it, isn't it? No one is qualified to judge fairly except the maker and the origin of good himself. And that's why the psalmist addresses the Lord. Did you see that? Do good, O Lord. That's who is making the decisions here. So God is the one who will judge, but then the second problem comes, comes as quick as the first, I think. Who on earth, then, would be in that verse 4 category? Who on earth would be considered good enough to fit the description? There'd be no one, really, to enjoy that perfect rest. No one is truly good and upright in their heart. So that's that's a problem as well, but this is the problem that that Jesus has solved in his life and his death and his resurrection. Because he wasn't just another sinful human. He lived exactly to the standards set by God. He is God and man. So he died in the place of humans to make us right with God. God. And so we go right back to verse 1, right at the beginning of this psalm. Those who are good, in verse 4, are those who trust in the Lord, in verse 1. Anyone and everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not those who wickedly lead a church and call themselves Christians. Not those who turn aside and and ignore their creator God and try and justify themselves with moral effort. No, it's if you trust in Jesus, it's your relationship to the Lord Jesus that makes the difference. And when he comes again to draw together a people, he will draw together a people that have willingly accepted and submitted and trusted In his death and resurrection. And then there will be peace. Then we'll truly feel, verse 1, if you had never felt it really in your life, then you'll feel like Mount Zion in the new Jerusalem, fully protected, surrounded with no wicked ruler to be found. Instead, we'll have Jesus the servant king, who will lead us perfectly forever. So there's so much to be built up by in this psalm, to be confident in, if you trust in the Lord Jesus. He's the difference. The Lord is the one who will make us feel like mountains. He is the one who can make the difference between wicked rule being just something we have to stick with and there's no hope, or whether we've got something beyond to look forward to. He is the one that will enable us to live in peace with him forever. Why don't we pray and pray that those things are not just left in page 517 of our Bibles, but they will impact our lives and we'll be so changed by them that that we'll, we'll want to speak to others, and tell others of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us this part of your word to encourage us and to remind us of the assurance, confidence that we have if we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. We know, Father, that we don't have perfect, upright hearts. So we're so thankful that because of Jesus, we can be counted righteous because of who he is, because of how righteous he is. And so we pray that even as we live in a world where there's wickedness at work, we'll remember that our place is in that defensive, protective wall and that jesus's blood has washed us clean that we are righteous before you and that wonderfully that means we can look forward to peace and security in the new creation with you forever pray that these things will help us to be confident in the gospel as we interact with those who don't know you and we pray that it would make a difference in our life in our witness to others We pray all these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.